Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and Josh thought I had made myself clear, but after riding into town last night and seeing what you had done, I guess I got to tell you just one more time. If you cut up another one of them whores, I'm going to burn your house down and kill your family. Thank you. Thank you for that <laughs> warning. I appreciate the heads up on that, just in case. It's very dark, these intros this season. I've not, that's a it theme is. of the season, you know? So. Yeah. Well, in this case, your dark intro is appropriate. <laughs> yeah, I'd say we're, so. We're talking about a very dark film. It was less appropriate when we talked about Wayne's World. But here, <laughs> however, in this season on the films of 1992, we are talking about the Best Picture winner from the Oscars. And it is a very, very dark film. It is Clint Eastwood's film Unforgiven, his Western, his final Western, and his sort of farewell to the genre, as many people sort of viewed it at the time. And Eastwood himself viewed it. At the time, of course, I think at the time, too, it was maybe viewed as a potential farewell in other ways for Eastwood. And, and obviously, uh, he's been saying farewell now for the past 30 years. But this movie, at least, was his final word on the Western genre, something that he'd become inextricably associated with for basically his entire career as an actor and as a director. He, of course, uh, hit stardom in the 1960s with westerns directed by Sergio Leone and himself had directed this was the fourth western that he had directed the fourth and final western uh, over the years in his career as a director after High Plains Drifter, The Outlaw Josie Wales and Pale Rider and yeah so this was this was his attempt to kind of put his final mark on the western genre I guess you could say. I think he did a good job, and in a way, it brought me back to our 1980 uh, uh, season and and the wonderful everyone's favorite film, Heaven's Gate, um, <laughs> because this is you know I didn't even realize it was a subgenre, the the revisionist western. So that sure. was kind of interesting to look over where we're no longer like yeehaw, ain't frontier life grand boys, you know. It's more like hey, everyone's a sum of bitch, and uh, you gotta fight to survive and and uh bad things happen all the time so you're gonna either you're gonna either live or die trying baby sure so i think we can agree that this is a better film than heaven's gate though of course of course we can agree on that josh it's a better film than a lot of movies i'd say it is you might even say it was the best picture of 1992 <laughs> he, nailed, least... he nailed it dave he nailed it right there oh yeah um at least the academy said that it was nominated for nine Oscars and it won four of them. It won Best Picture, Best Director for Clint Eastwood, Best Supporting Actor for Gene Hackman, who plays the ornery sheriff that Clint Eastwood's character, William Money, comes into conflict with. It also won Best Editing and it was additionally nominated for Best Actor for Clint Eastwood, Best Original Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography and Best Sound. And all, I think, deserve nominations. This is a movie that it just every part of it, I think, works incredibly, incredibly well. Yeah, I think. And it could have won any one of those. Right. Like yes. anyone, anyone that it would have won would be like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, 
So for picture, Josh, you know, we should say the ones that beat were uh, The Crying Game, Scent of a Woman, Howard's End, and A Few Good Men. And Eastwood beat out Neil Jordan from The Crying Game, James Ivory from Howard's End, Robert Altman, who we talked about in The Player, and Martin Brest, who we have discussed in our 1984 season for Scent of a Woman. Yes, and don't forget our discussion of Martin Brest in our 2003 season when we <laughs> talked about Geely. Come on. Mm-hmm. I've, I've tried sure, to forget Geely, but you know. Make sure to give Martin Brest his due. So this is one of those Best Picture winners that was also actually a successful film at the box office, grossing $159.2 million on its budget of $14.4 million. And even though it is, as Jason, as you say, a revisionist Western, it's darker, more challenging maybe than some other Westerns and some other Eastwood Westerns. It's not surprising that this movie was successful. It's certainly a mainstream friendly feel. It has these big movie stars in it. It's exciting and suspenseful, even if it's also depressing at times, I guess you could say. So I, I it doesn't surprise me that this movie did do well at the box office, if maybe not one of the top grossing movies of the year, per se. I mean, it stayed in the theater for basically a year. Um, I think, yeah, it's a really good movie and it's really tight as far as like, you know, structure, technical prowess, on screen stuff. But um, also, Josh, I think part of that history of like that you associate Eastwood with these Westerns so synonymously, and then you see him go like the other way on it, you know, like have this heel turn as the wrestling fans would say, um, <laughs> right. you know, probably, probably drew a lot of people in. Did you know there were only 19 other Westerns nominated for best picture and only three other winners? Yeah, I think I saw that. And it is a little surprising given how popular Westerns were in the forties, fifties, sixties. Um, obviously by 1992, this was a rare thing for there to be a Western. And I think weirdly, on the one hand, I'm saying it's surprising because Westerns were so prevalent in those earlier decades. But on the other hand, because there were so many of them, they were maybe taken for granted. And by 1992, when there's a Western, it's like, wow, this is somebody bothered to make a Western. This is sort of a bigger deal. Um, so I, I, it is a little surprising, but maybe not too surprising. I mean, I would have figured, uh, you know. Uh, John Wayne movie somewhere along the line would have would have won something at some point in time. Right. So. Right. Well, I mean, those are best picture nominees. That doesn't mean that other elements of Western movies might not have been nominated in other categories. Right. But, yeah. Right. As far as best picture goes, it was pretty rare. Yeah, You would figure and, John Ford would be nominated or something. But Josh, real fast before you move on there. The ones that did win were Cimarron in 1931, Dances with Wolves in 1990, just two years before this. And of course, we covered No Country for Old Men in 2007. Yeah, and I think it's a bit of a stretch to call No Country for Old Men a Western, really. Um, I don't. I don't. It's another revisionist modern Western the same way that like Hell or High Water is or something. Right. Yes, it is the sa- similar to Hell or High Water. I think both of those, given that they take place in the present day. It, it, it stretches it a bit, but but OK. Um, but I think what's interesting there is, you know, before this, as you pointed out, the previous winners were one in 1931 and then not until 1990. And basically that whole middle period is where we would have thought of the Western as a thriving genre. And it didn't get any of those nominations or it didn't get any of those wins, at least because I, I mean, I don't know why, but maybe because it was so commonplace and people thought, and it was thought of as 
sort of a, a lower, lesser genre. Westerns were B-movies for the large majority of their existence or the large majority of their popular existence. And I think it was only when they went away that we got the idea of a Western as a prestige thing because it would be a risk to make a Western because it was no longer a big popular thing. And of course, now they're thriving on television. Yellowstone is uh, its own empire at this point. Right. But again, that's one thing that's thriving on television. It's not like there's Westerns all over the place on TV. There's there's just Yellowstone and spinoffs of Yellowstone. Really. <laughs> Outer Range. That's a good one. It's just, yeah, it's a sci-fi thing. I mean, it continues to pop up the genre, you know, following this film. It, it would it pops up every now and then. There's always at least a few every year, but it's certainly not to the level that it was at its height. And it hasn't been, you know. Um, but it's interesting that you're talking about how I think one of the key things for this movie is the fact that this is Eastwood reflecting on his legacy and on his image as this person who starred in so many Westerns and is so intimately associated with the genre. But this screenplay from David Webb Peoples, he first wrote in 1976 and first showed to Eastwood in the early 80s. And you have to think that if this movie was made around that time, it would not have had nearly the impact that it had in 1992. I agree. And David Webb Peoples had co-wrote, co-written Blade Runner. Uh, he later went on to write 12 Monkeys. So I agree with you. Um, I think it had to be that moment in time where Eastwood uh, kind of had ascended and, and even David Webb Peoples had ascended and you just, you know, they found the right time to do it. The uh, alt titles were the cut whore killings. And the William Money Killings, which both are kind of cool names, but Unforgiven works for me. Yeah, those both sound more like B-movie names, like maybe they would have been if it was made in 1976. But this is a it's a classier name a little bit, I think, for this film. And it does work. It, it's not just a random a random title. So this movie did well with audiences. As we said, it, it grossed a, a good amount at the box office. It also got a B plus from CinemaScore, which is the audience polling service. Um, which is a, a decent score. And it did very well with critics, which was not surprising to me. What was slightly surprising to me was that Siskel and Ebert were really not that into it at the time. Um, they were sort of outliers, actually, because critics generally were into it. it. It didn't. It's not one of these Oscar winners that got mixed response or or was reassessed later. It was widely acclaimed at the time. But Siskel and Ebert actually split on it. Siskel gave it a thumbs down. And Ebert gave it a thumbs up, but it was sort of a mild thumbs up. Both of them thought it was too slow, that it was too meandering, that it had too many characters. Siskel complained that he wanted more of like a showdown between Clint Eastwood and Gene Hackman's characters, which is wildly missing the point of this movie, I think. Um, but they were very mixed on it. Ebert later came around to it more. He did include it in his Great Movies series eventually. But uh, it was interesting to me. To see them, you know, when it first came out and they're reviewing it just as it opens and they don't know what's going to happen with it later, of course, but they're basically dismissing it like, oh, here's Clint Eastwood doing another Western, whatever. It's not that great. Yeah. I didn't think about the showdown part. I guess that just kind of is like, hey, I wanted something really traditional here. But right. I do think they really missed the boat on um, the usage of characters because I feel like all these characters are used really, really well. And it's like, they're not hard to keep track of. Like each one, you kind of know where they fit and what their purpose is. Right. And they they spend a lot of time 
in that segment complaining about Richard Harris's character, English Bob, and how he could have just been removed entirely from the movie and it wouldn't make a difference. And I guess you could have removed him from the plot and it still would have held together. But I think thematically and, and just as a fascinating character, everything about his character and all the things that he does is worth watching. And so it really did feel like they missed the, the point of this film. Yeah, right. So you have that on on two levels, the level you're talking about, which is like, it's Richard Harris, and he's awesome. And the character's interesting. And also, even it, at, on another level, it's so important to tell the Gene Hackman character story. Like, that's how you know who Bill Daggett is by his interactions with English Bob, and what he's all about. Like, it's, it's essential to heighten what we're going to see down the line. I thought it was really effective the way he was used. Right. I think you're right. And, and you understand how dangerous little Bill is because of the way he interacts with English Bob and the way he interacts with Beauchamp, the pulp writer played by Saul Rubinek. And so when we get to the showdown that Siskel and Ebert were also complaining about, we understand how severe the danger is for William Money, who is also a very, very dangerous figure too. But I think we we realize that these are evenly matched guys in terms of the possibility for killing that they both have. And they sure do their share of killing, Josh. They do. <laughs> so for the most part, though, critics were very positive about this film. Dwayne Berge in The Hollywood Reporter said, with the squinty calm of an old pro, Eastwood has scoped the big notion sites of the Old West and shot asunder Americana myths, namely the romanticism of killing. Unforgiven is both a dark look into a bad man's soul and a hard reckoning over a growing country's bloody innards. Like a shooter whose skill allows him to take careful aim with a rifle rather than going for the easy splatter of a buckshot, director Eastwood's big picture is assuredly calibrated. He points your eye to the tiniest specks, the most telling and powerful parts of this moral panorama. You know, you were talking about the lack of a showdown that or that Siskel and Ebert were. And then here we have something uh, about the, you know, kind of de-glorification, would you say, of killing? Is that what he Yeah. Would? And I think that's right, because none of the kills are like, oh, what an amazing kill, right? Or whatnot, like. You know, they get the ba the the bandits or whatever, the guys who have the bounty on their head. And to me, the most memorable thing and one of the best parts of the movie, a spoiler, if you haven't seen, is uh, when Eastwood does get a uh, little bill at the end and, you know, he's still alive and uh, William Money's standing over him and little bill says, I don't deserve to die like this. And he goes, I'll see you in hell, William Money. Like it's. Man, that's the Oscar for Gene Hackman right there. He nails that. And it's like, oh, what character work. Right. And there's so many iconic lines in that moment when he says he doesn't deserve it. And William Money I'm says, building that. He goes, I don't deserve to die like this. I'm building a house. You know? Right. Yeah. That, the whole, and that's a great character detail for him. The fact that he is building that house and he just wants a porch where he can sit at night and kind of observe the land or whatever. And the idea that he's. He's terrible at carpentry, as, as people point out multiple yeah. times, and he's building this this poorly constructed house, but he's so proud of it. Um, but that moment has one of the iconic lines from the movie when he says he doesn't deserve it. And William Money says, deserves got nothing to do with it. Right. Like, there are so many of those these big iconic lines in here that that sound badass, maybe out of context, 
but are really just about the futility of this whole violent Wild West life that is really uh, what this movie is about. Yeah, I I didn't take notes, but uh, one, I mean, I took notes, obviously, but not while I was watching. But they really got a lot of that great language from the Old West in there, just in, um, you know, different character lines when describing different things going on. That that was one of the, the wonderful uh, assets of this film. Yeah, I think the writing here is fantastic. And credit to David Webb Peoples, in addition to Eastwood, because the screenplay here is just rock solid and the dialogue is, is excellent. So Kenneth Turan in the LA Times also gets to a lot of this uh, idea of deglorification. He says, as true grit was for John Wayne, this is also something of a last hurrah for Eastwood's man with no name persona. But because Eastwood is who he is, it is a dark and ominous goodbye, brooding and stormy. Unforgiven is also, and this is perhaps its most unexpected aspect, a neat piece of revisionism a violent film that is determined to demythologize killing. Considerable emphasis is placed on how hard it is to kill even one man, on the destructive interior price that must be paid for each and every act of mayhem. If there are thrills to be had here, none of them come at all cheap. Josh, uh, what did, how did you feel after the first time you killed someone? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, not good, I guess, yeah. No, it wasn't. I don't, I don't know how to answer that question. Well, I mean, you know, we are anti-murder on this podcast, so maybe True. it's because you've you uh, you've done the murder, and you're like, hey, you know what? It's not a, a good idea. Thing. I'm not yeah. not for murders. me. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> uh, I'm not that guy anymore. So, but I think that is the point here is that you sort of expect from this genre that you're going to cheer some of these killings, especially the killings of the two cowboys who maim the. Uh, prostitute, prostitute at the beginning yeah. of the film, which is sort of the inciting incident, right? The prostitutes get this money together so that they can hire bounty hunters to kill these guys. And they're, those are, they're clearly bad guys, these cowboys. They did a terrible thing to this woman and they don't really seem to regret it and we don't like them. But when they finally get killed, it's horrifying. It's awful. I mean, the, the scene where they kill the younger one, the one who didn't actually do the slashing, but just kind of helped out. And William Money shoots him from a distance and his aim is not great and he hits him in the gut. And so he's just dying really slowly and he's in pain and he's thirsty. It's just agonizing. It's the most horrible, horrible thing. And like I said, it's it's kind of depressing while you watch it. But that's what's really powerful about this movie is that they take this moment where you think you're going to be like, yeah, get him. That guy's awful. And you just feel horrible. So that character that's Davy, right? You know, what, you know, that was a little more ambiguous for me, his involvement in the incident, because he was trying to pull the guy quick Mike off. And then he also, you know, brought the, the pony, you know, so was he, was he really involved? Or was it a guilt by association? thing? I mean, I think he's involved. I wasn't clear if he was trying to pull the guy off, or he was trying to pull the whores away from the guy to let him keep going. But yeah, either way, he clearly feels remorse afterwards. Like you said, he brings that pony and he's trying to, or brings that horse and he's trying to make amends to the whore in his very misguided way. And he wasn't the active one. You get the impression that he wouldn't necessarily have decided to commit this act of violence on his own. It was only because his partner was doing it that he was there. So, uh, and, and standing by his partner. So, yeah, he's clearly not 
as guilty. But when we see the other guy get killed, it's less agonizing. It's quicker, but it's also terrible. Yeah, he's sitting on the, on the shitter there in the outhouse. He's unarmed. He's putting his hands up like, please don't shoot me. And then the Schofield kid shoots him. And it's it's agonizing for him to do because he has to really face up to what it means to kill somebody for the first time. So I, I think in both cases, even in the case of the guy who's clearly more guilty and clearly did a horrible thing and doesn't feel bad about it, it it's still terrible to watch him get killed. I think my point was like, it's another kind of demystification of the West and everything, because it was that like, if it is guilt by association, it's like, hey, just the fact that you were there and, uh, you know, this is your partner, no matter what you try to do to make amends, it's it's too late for you. Right. I think so. I think it's all of this very stark thing. And we see that similarly, I suppose, with Ned, the more yeah, human character exactly. who gets that, too. He ultimately can't kill. He decides he he can't do it and that he's going to leave instead. And yet, because he was involved with money and with the Schofield kid, they pick him up, they torture him, they kill him, they put his body on display. It doesn't matter that he didn't actually commit this crime. He didn't actually murder this guy. He's there and that's good enough. Yeah. How dark is that? That kind of usage of him as a, uh, uh, would you call it a statue of some type? Like, hey, this is what happens to outlaws in this town. Right, right. Yeah, it is really. And I'm sure that was the kind of thing that really did happen back in the Old West. But it, it is awful to see his corpse there stood up in the square or whatever and uh, with a sign on it like it's some sort of display. And that's that's what he amounts to his whole life. So and and this is 1881. And I thought it was really effective that in this case, race had nothing to do with anything. Right. They never right. even mentioned the race of uh, Morgan Freeman's character, which is, you know, it just is it's just uh, bodies for bodies here. Right. And we don't know if that character was meant, was written, say, in the script to be black or it was because Morgan Freeman was cast. But either way, yeah, you're right that that <laughs> the one thing that's missing in this movie is racism. The only terrible <laughs> thing that we don't have to deal with here is racism, although we don't we don't stand for a racism here in big whiskey. Right. No, mm -hmm. no, we don't. But certainly there was plenty of racism in the Old West in 1881, but it's not the issue at hand in this film. Right. There's no racism, but don't say that the queen is better than the president because then right. you're in for yeah. some trouble. English Bob will get you. So finally, Richard Corliss in Time magazine said, Unforgiven, Eastwood's first Western since Pale Rider in 1985, is a dark, passionate drama with good guys so twisted and bad guys so persuasive that virtue and villainy become two views of the same soul. But it is also Eastwood's meditation on age, repute, courage, heroism, on all those burdens he has been carrying with such good grace for decades, on quintessence. The movie mm. takes its time letting you watch Clint turn into Clint, and when he does, it's not thrilling, but scary. At the end, he threatens to, quote, come back and kill everyone. Behind him, lightning illuminates an American flag and underlines the film's dour message. The world's stalwart policeman can easily become the world's nastiest killer. And vice versa. <laughs> right, exactly. I think that that is sort of the point is that William Money has been this terrible villain. I mean, he keeps talking about all the things that he did in his past, that he was not heroic in any way. He killed all sorts of people for no good reason. And he keeps saying, 
I ain't like that anymore, even though it sounds like he's maybe protesting a little too hard. And whether he is or is not like that anymore is open for debate. And that's a good point, because it's like the Schofield kid comes in. He's like, hey, come help me get these these guys for the bounty. And he's like, nah. And then one scene later, like he misses a pig and he's like, ah, all right, I'll go. So he doesn't really try. But uh, there's a great episode of script notes um, where they break down this movie. And they and one of the points like Craig Mazin makes is how you see him in the beginning. And he's like this broken down old man who can't get on a horse. So it's it's the mental and the physical like kind of regaining of stature, I guess, throughout the film. Right. And I did like, too, though, that at the beginning, like you say, he can't get on the horse um, and yet he still can't get on the horse as the movie goes on. Even as he sort of regains that stature, I like that they didn't forget about his infirmities or whatever, and that there's at least one scene where they're trying to get away in a hurry and he still can't get on the horse right away. He still has trouble with it because he, he's still I mean, he's brought back some of his William Money legendary killer aspect but he's still an old man who is still uh, a bit slow or whatever we don't we don't forget that we see every every inch of that age and the toll that time has taken on him throughout the film the old west josh it wasn't a land of uh, cotton candy and lollipops no no it wasn't <laughs> this isn't this isn't how the west was fun yeah we that's right a, oh boy we don't have the olsen twins here so uh, anything else on the background, Jason, you want to mention? Well, Josh, I did mention Anna Thompson, the uh, lady of ill repute who gets her face cut. She was also in Heaven's Gate. So oh. we have uh, that connection there. Um, right. Yeah, that's it. Uh, this was um, I thought this was the weirdest thing that I read, though, Josh. Hmm. The film was planned to be used as a theme for a Six Flags Great Adventures upcoming roller coaster, but market research showed that people found it too dark a theme, so the ride name was changed to The Viper. How would this be roller coaster, Josh? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, and the only thing I can think of is that presumably that was decided before the movie came out, before anyone had seen the movie, that uh, Warner Brothers or whatever says, hey, we got a new Clint Eastwood Western. How can we market that? And they go to Six Flags and say, do you want to make a ride based on a Clint Eastwood Western? That sounds good, right? Why not? Um, and then only after they see the movie, do they realize what it is? So I, I guess I can imagine just the idea of a Clint Eastwood Western sounds like an exciting roller coastery kind of thing that they would only realize afterwards what it really entailed. Unless someone just snuck one in on Wikipedia just to mess with us. That is also possible. That, yeah. does, that does happen. So did you see this movie in 1992, Jason? Uh, Josh, I didn't see it in 1992. I did see it a few years ago. And when you're checking off like the great films of all time, I liked it then. But uh, as uh, in a reversal of most of my commentaries on Awesome Movie Year, I liked it more this time. Oh, well, that's good. That's glad to, I'm glad to hear that. So I think I did see it in 1992, not in the theater, but at home, probably because it was the Best Picture winner and it seemed like something that I should watch, even though most of the other nominees I think I, I didn't see at that time and, and haven't still seen. You guys but, didn't do Family Movie Night for Howard's End, Josh? No, no, we didn't. And I, I think I probably watched this on my own, even though, as I've said many times on this show, my dad was and is a huge fan of Westerns, but I think um, 
I don't recall watching this with him. I'm sure he watched it too, but I think I probably just watched it on my own. And I, I didn't, I hadn't seen it since then. And I didn't really remember much of anything about it or my reaction other than I think I liked it at the time, but I was not really into Westerns back then. I'm much more so now. And I really liked it this time. I think yeah. it's just a fantastic film. It's really good. And I watched the, like just a couple days before also Pale Rider and The Outlaw Josie Wales, two of the three other Westerns that Eastwood directed, both of which are good, but are more traditional, even though they have some revisionist elements, but they're much more traditional. But watching those and then watching this right away, it's like, this is so much better. This is such a huge step above those other two. It's so much more complex. The characters are so much more interesting. Even the way it looks is better. So it was it was impressive to watch it right after those other ones. Yeah, and your first time in 30 years. That's pretty cool. Right. Um, yeah, I had not ever felt a need to revisit this film, but I'm glad that I did. Does your dad like it? I think so. I'm not sure. I mean, like I said, I know he he likes westerns in general. I would imagine that he does, but I don't recall having a specific discussion about this movie. Um, I mean, he watches a lot of older Westerns, too, that are, I suppose, more traditional. But I, I, I think he would get behind this one as well. Yeah. Well, hopefully he's not cutting up any more whores. No, I don't think I think he, he's retired. So <laughs> he's like William Money on the pig farm. He doesn't have it in him anymore. Yeah. No, he doesn't. So, Dave, had you seen this one before? I don't think so. I, I've always kind of stayed away from Westerns. It's just not really my genre. But um, mm. I, it was really good, though. So Josh said, uh, according to your letterbox review. By the way, I'm on Letterboxd to go for Jason. He said uh, you didn't. You gave it a good review, but didn't seem to like it that much. Yeah, no, I I liked it plenty. I I, I think I even said in my Letterboxd review, like as far as westerns go, it's it's like practically perfect. <laughs> but like, it's just not my genre. So like on a personal level, I kind of rated it a little on the lower end. But um, yeah, no, I it's really good though. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's fair that Westerns, as popular as they were for many, many decades, and as much as they still come back periodically, is a very specific kind of thing and something that a lot of people are just, it just doesn't matter what the approach is or what kind of story it's telling. Westerns just turn some people off. And and, yeah. and I get that, I suppose. Josh, everything is a specific kind of thing. That's why it's a genre. Right. But I think the parameters of a Western are a little more narrow. I mean, like we were just saying with Hell or High Water or with No Country for Old Men, I think most people would not really think of those as a Western and, and things that fit within the really the narrow parameters of that genre. It's not like horror movies or something where there's a lot more range within the genre. I think there is more range than people who dismiss Westerns give them credit for, but it's still not a huge amount. And so it's easier for people to dismiss that kind of thing versus saying they don't like comedies or something like that. Who doesn't like comedy? That's a dumb example. Right. That's uh, like people who are like, I don't like sandwiches. Just leave me alone. Yeah. Who doesn't like sandwiches? Yeah. Sandwiches rule. I love All right. sandwiches. Well, on that note, we'll come back in a moment and talk more of our general thoughts on Unforgiven. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1992, we are talking about the Best Picture winner, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. And we're just talking about the idea of the Western genre. And this certainly plays with it, subverts it a lot. I think that's one of the great things about this movie is that every time you think you're going to get a moment to cheer for, instead, you feel like shit. 
And that is what I cheered for that, but that's you know probably because I'm uh, running low on my antidepressants, Josh. Um, (laughs) But you know they're all great moments, whether they depress you or not, right? Oh yeah, yeah, they're absolutely great moments. And like you could just like we could literally just sit here and list them off, like the scene where uh, little Bill uh, just beats the 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 hell out of. We mentioned uh, English Bob before, but how about the scene where he beats up? William Money, who's, you know, sick with like a fever or the flu. And and then uh, William Money has to crawl on his hands and knees out of the bar and or the saloon while the other two escape from upstairs. And it's just pouring rain. And like it's it's a very it's one of the great cinematic moments I can think of of this guy. Like he can't get any lower like that, uh, you know, and then he almost dies. So that kind of goes along with it. But uh what a what a moment right there. Yeah, and the willingness to show that, the willingness of Eastwood to show not only his, quote, hero character, but Eastwood himself, this Western icon, as this sickly, weak man who can't put up any resistance and just falls on the ground and gets beaten up and then, like you said, literally crawls out the door, that the movie will show that. And then, yeah, okay, eventually he kills little Bill But it's not like this triumphant return for him that he comes back from this low point and is back on top or whatever. It's it's a sad moment, too, when he kills little Bill, as you're saying earlier, is that this guy's lying on the floor and however formidable he was at one time, he's just kind of whimpering like I was building a house and that's what he cares about. And that's his death scene. It's not a big triumph moment at all. Yeah, well, I mean, if I'm going to give William Money a little credit, we know he's like kind of broken down, but little Bill did kick his ass while he was like basically on death's door, right? So, true, true. Um, but uh, I, I think it's also like kind of the precursor to what we see with Eastwood going forward, you know, in all these movies like Gran Torino and everything as this old man who's not supposed to be able to hack it, but he's able to pull out like one more just uh, – whatever success and everything like that. So um, one thing I think is interesting is like, I get it. The Academy is the Academy, but Hackman's also the lead actor in this thing. I think, I think they're both lead actors in this movie. Yeah, you could say that. I mean, this movie does spend a lot of time with characters who are not William Money. And I mean, I, I know it's not necessarily the Academy as much. I think what happens with those things is that the studio decides to submit Uh, actors in various categories. And this comes up a lot. And in in part, it comes down to competition. Like they don't want Hackman and Eastwood competing for the same award. So they submit them in different categories or whatever. Yeah. Now, Josh, I don't I don't know too much about the Academy rules. Granted, I did just win the best comedy screenplay at the (laughs) Cordillera International Film Festival. But really, that's got nothing to do with them. the Oscars so. at all, but yeah. we're still bringing it up. <laughs> I don't know if if he gets the joke, Dave. But um, <laughs> I, I, look, I like all these side characters. I I mean, Frances Fisher, we know, is a great actress. Doesn't really have all that much to do here. Uh, the, the women in general, I guess, representative of uh, the male outlook of women around this time, might have been represented. Although I would say the um. The the whores do take a very independent stand to like go and place the bounty on the head of uh, Quick Mike and Davy. Yeah, I think the the female characters in this movie have more 
independent agency, at least then the female characters in those other movies that I watched just before this in Josie Wales and in Pale Rider, where the female characters exist mostly to kind of swoon over and or be saved by Clint Eastwood's character in those films. And here they do more than that. I mean, we have a brief moment in this movie where the prostitute who has been attacked, whose face is slashed, has kind of a nice D little- Delilah. Delilah has kind of a nice little moment with William Money, and you almost think like maybe they'll have a romantic connection and then that doesn't happen. And I appreciated that they didn't have to throw that in too. But yeah, Francis Fisher's character is very proactive and is always fighting back and arguing against these terrible men who treat her and her fellow prostitutes terribly. And I liked her performance. You're right. It's not, she doesn't have that much to do, but with what she gets to do, I think she did a lot with it. I, I really do like Saul Rubinick as Beauchamp, the um, biographer who gets caught up in all the, uh, and he's basically a star fucker in the 1800s, right? You yes. know? Yes, he um, is. But I, I mean, I did find the Schofield kid annoying. And I, I wonder if that's less about the performance and more about just the character himself. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little of both. I think the character is supposed to be annoying to these older seasoned gunmen. And the fact that he's so like golly gosh enthused about going off to kill people when people like William Money and Ned and, and even Little Bill know about the real like hard toll that killing people takes on your soul. And so it, that's that's meant to be kind of an annoying character. But I do think that in a movie with such a, an amazing cast, in a movie with Clint Eastwood and Morgan Freeman and Gene Hackman and Richard Harris and even Francis Fisher, that this nobody guy, <laughs> this uh, actor that they've cast, James Wolvett, as the Schofield kid is just kind of out of his depth, I think. Mm. And, and that's okay. You know, he wasn't, he's a younger actor and obviously he's not going to have the gravitas and the, the seasoned experience of those older performers. But when he first showed up on screen and I, you know, I hadn't seen this movie in a long time and I didn't remember that character who played him, I was kind of looking, I was like, oh, that's got to be some younger famous person. And it, it isn't. So I think that's just there was the possibility of casting someone with a lot more talent and a lot more potential. And that's just not where they ended up. So I, uh, I'll just defend him and say that he's, uh, he's been a working actor and still is a working actor. So he's made a good run of it. Well, right. I mean, I, I just think that you expect, or maybe I expected like, Oh, this is going to be an early role for someone right, who went on to right. become really famous. And that's not yeah. what it is at all. And I don't think it really, is necessarily a huge detriment to the film, but I do think in contrast to all these other just towering performances, he is not up to the standard. He's no Christian Slater. I, I kept thinking that it should have been Christian Slater, actually. <laughs> so Honestly, that was, that was the person who came to mind, and there were a couple of line readings that almost sounded like Christian Slater, and I was like, why wasn't Christian Slater cast in this Yeah, movie? there we go. So we agree there. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, we talked about the cinematography, cinematography, Josh. Cinematography. Yeah. Ooh, delicious. Yeah. And Jack Green shot all of Clint Eastwood's movies from 1986 through 2000. And then went on to shoot like a bunch of like stuff like Twister and 51st States. Very varied career. But Eastwood is, you know, famous for having his department heads and his crew locked in. And he shoots in that kind of European style, you know, maybe two or three takes. And we're moving on eight to 10 hour days. 
And um, the the thing with that is it's interesting because you're not getting all those takes. You better be on your game because these the, the, if you don't get it now, you ain't going to get it, buddy. Right. He's very much known for that and for having that impatience. In fact, the outlaw Josie Wales, uh, one of his earlier Westerns that he directed, originally he was not the director of it. Philip Kaufman, who is also the co-screenwriter, was the director. And Eastwood, as the producer, after like a week of shooting, was so impatient with Kaufman and the way that he was doing things that I guess weren't moving fast enough for Eastwood. He fired him. He had the director fired and took over himself which uh, was the inspiration for then a change in Directors Guild rules that made it so that a producer or star of a film could not fire the director during production and take over as director themselves. So, but that's how focused Eastwood was on that particular method of shooting. And it's interesting to bring up Heaven's Gate yet again in this episode, Josh. Please, Um, We had talked about, you know, obviously Chimino and... What a bloated kind of uh, showing of decadence that was. But in um, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, is that what I think that's what it's called? The one that he the one that he directed and wrote that basically Eastwood gave him the chance to direct. He basically said, yeah, I had to keep moving. Otherwise, Clint Eastwood would fire me. So it's it's funny because, you know, there's a guy who's known for opulence and wasting time. But when you're with Eastwood, you do it his way or you don't do it. Right. And maybe we'll talk about this more in the legacy section, but I think that Eastwood technique, although it can produce great results, produces less great results in some of his later films. But, you know, I think we can get to that. But here it works. And I think part of the reason that it works is because he has Morgan Freeman and Gene Hackman and Richard Harris and people who don't need many takes in order to get it right. And maybe James Wolvitt is somebody who could have used an extra take or two because he's less experienced, but he doesn't get that chance for it. I think that's fair. Where do you put this in the, in the list of great Gene Hackman performances? Um, You know, I'd have to go back again and look through every bit of Gene Hackman's filmography. I know we talked about him when we did our Bonnie and Clyde episode. And so I wasn't combing through everything, but I mean, I think it's right up there. I think it's right up there with uh, the conversation comes to mind, of course, as one of his best performances. And I'm sure other ones that I'm now forgetting. French Connection. French Connection. Tenenbaums. There you go. Yeah. Tenenbaums is not, you know, my not uh, I'm not a fan of Wes Anderson, but certainly he's good in uh, in that film. And that's a very different kind of role. You know, those. Yeah. We could just go on and on Hoosiers and this and that. Like we I haven't seen talked about him. Um, oh, well, we maybe we'll get to it in another season. Maybe I was just so. wondering that. But um, yeah, but I think this is absolutely up there. It's absolutely up there. He's fantastic. in this. I uh, I mentioned like pro wrestling as a joke earlier, but when he's beating the guy up and he goes, this is for all the outlaws in Cheyenne and Kansas. It's like it felt very like a pro wrestling promo to me, but done at the highest of levels. Right. So, yeah. What if Clint Eastwood directed a pro wrestling promo? I mean, it could be next. Uh, It could be next, Josh. Can I shout out one other thing before we get to the rating? I bet it's the score. So I didn't want to talk about the score necessarily. I mean, it's solid. It's a great score, yeah. Yeah, it is. Very great. But uh, no, the the sound design actually uh, is one of the things that really stuck out the most for me here. And, you know, every one of those guns and horses and the creeping through through the saloon and all, all the sound design was just so like, perfect like really really great work 
Yeah, and that was another thing that was nominated uh, for an Oscar for. And I do want to shout out the score because I thought the score was really good. And I yeah. looked at the composer and I was like, oh, who is this Lenny Nyhouse I've not heard of? Why was he not an in-demand composer? But like Jason, that you were mentioning with Eastwood, he works with the same people over and over again. And this guy basically just worked on Eastwood movies. He scored yeah. a whole mm. bunch of Eastwood movies and almost nothing else. And so Eastwood had these people that he just relied on. And maybe in some cases, people who weren't working elsewhere in film. You know, Eastwood himself was a jazz musician and, and Nyhouse was also a jazz musician. Maybe wasn't really a film composer most of the time. But when Eastwood said, compose music for my movie, mm -hmm. you don't say no to Clint Eastwood. So there it happened. I think his Bloodwork score was really good, if I remember correctly. But okay, uh, I haven't yeah, seen, I haven't seen Bloodwork. But and again, I want to shout out David Webb Peoples again, because I feel like the language in this movie is just so Agreed. rich and so precise. And even the way it opens with that crawl, like it's Star Wars or something with that opening crawl about the background of William Money. And then it closes with another one. And it's just so literary and so beautifully written and just not the way that you expect any movie to open. That's not right. Star Wars. Right. You could see people like uh, be like, why is this even here? But it's it really brings you into the story. Right. It brings you into the story and it closes the story on a perfect note. So, um, yeah, those are just a couple couple other elements. And then we can uh, we can go ahead and rate this. All right. How about uh, what do you want to rate it out of, Josh? I know what you want to rate it out of, but I'm trying to go the other way. On I, it, I don't so. know what you're what you're implying there about me. I some some horrible thing. I mean, it's hard not to pick something horrible because that's all that <laughs> there is in this movie. We're going to rate yeah. it out of five cut up whores. Are we well, that's it exactly a... what I thought you were going to do, because we always go for mutilation and body parts in this one. So I was I was pretty positive that's where you would go. All right. So. Well, would you would you come up with something innocuous? How would you do that for this film? Yeah, I'm good with cut up horse. Um, yeah, that works. Yeah. I'm I, honestly four and a half. Uh, this is top notch film, top notch filmmaking, top notch performances. The look, the feel, the story, everything, the flow of the movie, it just all coalesces into one of the great American films. Four and a half cut up horse for this guy. <laughs> And I'm I'm going to agree with you. I mean, everything there, everything that you're saying is correct. I'm going to give it four out of five cut up pours. Just maybe I didn't quite like it as much, but I, I don't have any real criticisms for this film. It is a fantastic movie that I really enjoyed watching again. And uh, so four cut up pours for me, Dave, how would you rate this? Um, I'm going three and a half, but just know that that's mm. a personal rating. You know, it, it's a fantastic movie and like expertly made in every aspect, really. So it, it's a really strong three and a half. All right. Okay. Thank you, Dave, well, for yeah. telling us it's a personal rating. So none of us confuse with that. You're actually rating it for someone else. I'm <laughs> rating it for Dave, you. Dave is the official authority on movie ratings. And the cut up fours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Unforgiven. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1992, we are talking about Best Picture winner Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. And as a legacy here... It's it's all about Eastwood, I think, really, is the main thing. And the way that this was a farewell in some ways. I mean, it was definitely a farewell to the Western genre. As we said, he has not worked again in that genre. But 
in a way also it was viewed as a farewell for him, which of course it wasn't. I, I think there was a one letterboxed review that I saw that said that this was uh, Clint Eastwood's elegiac farewell followed by 23 more movies. <laughs> so, I mean, who decided it was his farewell? I don't know. I think the tone of it maybe. Um, and certainly, again, it was his farewell to the Western. And so maybe it was more about that. But I think Eastwood has done a lot of these movies that feel like farewells, whether they were really meant to be a capper to his career or not. They have that tone to them. Uh, and my thing is, like, maybe that's just the theme he keeps coming back to because now he's in his 90s and he's like, well, one of these will be my farewell, whether I want it to <laughs> yeah. be or not. So maybe that's just, you know, filmmakers have themes. That could be a theme that he's working with. I mean, yeah. You know, I mean, look, I don't like Million Dollar Baby. I was really not happy when that won the uh, best picture over the aviator Scorsese. But uh, he did repeat as best picture and best director with Million Dollar Baby. And he's had a lot of big box office hits since then, like American Sniper. Right. You know, so I think when you get to like Eastwood stature, like you don't worry about it. You just because right now we're literally having this conversation with Warner Brothers. Right. And David Zaslav, who's the new head. Ah, I don't know I'm gonna, if I'm going to honor this Clint Eastwood contract. It's like, dude, just let him do his thing, man. You know, Warner Brothers will survive. He deserves to do whatever he wants at this point in time. He does. And I mean, I will say, even though looking over, and I've seen a lot of Clint Eastwood movies, I've seen basically every movie that he's directed in the last 20 plus years, just because they're all major movies. And many of them, if not most of them, have come out since I've been reviewing movies. And so, of course, I'm going to see this big new Clint Eastwood film. It's just there's not a choice. And I don't really like most of them <laughs> as films. I do think, like I was saying before, that his very laconic, casual style of direction has not served him all that well as it's gone on. But at the same time, he's so prolific that I can still point to some of these movies that I thought were fantastic. Uh, Mystic River, I remember yeah, absolutely loving. I, I really like Letters from Iwo Jima, which is, I think, a, a slightly underrated Clint Eastwood film, even though that was also nominated for Oscars. Um, he was nominated, as you said, he won for Million Dollar Baby, also was nominated for Mystic River, Letters from Iwo Jima, and American Sniper, which I really dislike. I also really, really dislike Million Dollar Baby. But he just keeps going. And his career since this film has really been more about being a director than being an actor. Since Unforgiven, he only appeared in two movies that he acted in and didn't direct. Uh, one of which was In the Line of Fire from Wolfgang Peterson, which was just, I think, the following year after this, and then nothing until Trouble with the Curve, which was almost just like a favor to that director, Robert Lorenz, who was someone that Eastwood, you know, we talk about all the people that he works with over and over again, was someone that Eastwood had worked with as a, a producer, I think, um, for many, many years and was making his directorial debut. And it felt like Eastwood was like, sure, I'll, I'll do this for you so you have a big star in your movie. But other than that, he's just focused on being a director. And if he acts, he only acts in his own movies. I think part of that has to be, again, you're talking about a dude who's getting older, who's making 17 movies a year, right? And it takes <laughs> basically two years to make a movie. So if he's focused on making his movies and he's acting in them, how does he have time to do anything else? Right. I think he clearly decided that the important thing for him was to direct and that you're right. He didn't want to take time out to act in other people's movies when he could be focusing on directing his own films. And he is, he's 92 right now, but he's still going. He just made Cry Macho 
last year, which is another farewell seeming film. And I don't know, did you see that movie, Jason? No, I had seen The Mule before it, and this one just felt like The Mule Part 2, so I was just like, I'm good on this one. So Yeah, I think I didn't really care for either of those films, and I think especially in Cry Macho, it's weird because it's like, yes, this is a movie about an aging character who is much you know, like William Money, it has sort of been put out to pasture and then is getting back into the swing of things, but the character should be in his 60s and Clinton is in his 90s. And it just really, it was not believable. As as spry as Clint is for a guy who's 92, I just didn't buy him as that character in Cry Macho. And again, I feel like part of the problem is that his directing is so laid back that unless he casts people like Gene Hackman and Morgan Freeman, he just doesn't get the performances that he needs to get in these movies. I don't know if you've seen the 1517 to Paris, which was his movie that he directed about those American soldiers who thwarted a, an attack on a train in Paris that was a big news story. And he made the very, very baffling decision of casting those real guys as themselves. And they're not actors. And that movie is just one of the worst movies I've seen because it, it, it's, it's Eastwood doing his normal thing where he's giving these non-actors one take and they cannot do any of it. It is so painful and so unconvincing. And so he's he's definitely still made some baffling choices as a director. Josh, I guess the only thing I could say to that is he calls his cock macho. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm amazed that it took this long for you to break out some kind of Clint Eastwood impression. I don't really have a good impression, but I remember when Dave and I were covering uh, and on the Piecing It Together preview you know, we do yeah. the trailer episode every month. And I was just like, how could I watch this movie if this is in the trailer? Like, he calls his cock macho. All right. <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. it's Because it's he's not, talking I about mean, a rooster at the time. He's not actually Yes, talking, there is yeah. a, yeah, there is a rooster named Macho. But 90-year-old Clint Eastwood still has a, a romantic subplot in that film with a woman who is like maybe in her 60s, but it's still like, this is not age appropriate. And in The Mule, he has like two threesomes, I think, doesn't oh, he? Yeah. It's not age appropriate. Josh is now talking about a 90-year-old shouldn't be able to be with a 60-year-old. You're so woke, Josh. <laughs> I'm not saying he shouldn't be able to. I'm saying that in the context of that film and that character, I didn't believe it. Oh, okay. All right. That's fair then. So Yeah. I think you've piled up enough on Clint Eastwood for one day, Josh. <laughs> and and I, 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 I like Clint Eastwood. I loved this film. And I think he's done a lot of good stuff. But I think his certain things that were strengths became weaknesses as his career went. What's your favorite directed by Clint Eastwood post Unforgiven? I mean, I think, like I said, it's either Mystic, Mystic River, River or, or, or Letters yeah. from Iwo Jima. Those two, I think, are the, the best ones. Yeah. So what about you, Dave? I, I would actually go with those same two. Yeah, Letters from Iwo Jima is great. And uh, Mystic River, who doesn't love Mystic River? Yeah. 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 So as I said, we, we talked about Gene Hackman's career when we did our episode on Bonnie and Clyde. We've he, talked about he, Morgan Freeman. You know, we don't, yeah. we, we've done these guys. We've covered these guys. They're, they're big towering figures. Morgan Freeman still uh, working into his late 80s. And uh, Hackman, of course, retired in 2004 after the genius that was welcome to Mooseport because he was like, how do I top this? I mean, it's dude, impossible. I miss Gene. I miss Gene Hackman. He's so good. But he is good. Know. And he is also I think he's the same age as Eastwood. I think he's also 92 and still writing books, still painting. Give him his his due. Yeah, gosh. no, good for him. I mean, he did exactly what he wanted to. But I, I just think 
you know, between 2004 and now, I'm sure we could have gotten some good work out of him. But but he absolutely deserves to do what he wants. And if he decided that he was done with acting and he wanted to retire, I wouldn't have wanted to see a movie with Gene Hackman where he didn't want to be there. And a bunch of Gene Hackman performances where he's not engaged and doesn't care. We have many, many aging actors giving those performances. We don't yeah. need more of them. And that doesn't seem like Gene Hackman. You know, he was so into it. But let's talk about, you know, we mentioned Frances Fisher. Uh, you know, a few years ago, she was in The Watchmen, which was great. And obviously Titanic. She is got about like seven projects going right now. She's an in-demand actress all the way from voice acting to like some of these smaller probably straight to what used to be video movies to just big like Western projects. Um, and Saul Rubinick is another major character actor. He is a quintessential to the, not quintessential, quintessential to <laughs> the Canadian theater scene. So, you know, I think we kind of came down on uh, the Schofield kid there. Uh, Himes, or I think it's Himes. You called him James, right? Oh, yeah. I don't know. It didn't look like uh, he was... Uh... Uh, Latino or anything like that, but no. I don't know what his I don't know what his ethnic background. But anyway, like you know, the the it was very wise to surround this film with such good character actors, right? And I think that is one of the things that again makes him look a little weaker. Um, but like you said, he did. He was a working actor for a while. He doesn't have any credits post two thousand eight, so I'm not sure if he's retired or just stopped getting work and moved on to something else. But he did work for quite a long time after this film. And Saul Rubinek is great. He's one of those character actors that every time he shows up, you know, you're going to get something good right. out of him, even if the project is not that good. And he did appear, at least in one other Western, one of uh, uh, one of the, these movies that's a periodic Western revival, which is the Coen Brothers, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Right, that right. He does a great job in that film. So um, and he fits perfectly with the Coen Brothers sensibility, I think. And we've talked a little about Richard Harris, um, obviously a legendary actor, and uh, he kind of went out on a high note in Harry Potter. But did you know, Josh, he had a worldwide hit with his cover of MacArthur Park? I did not know that, but that hmm. is quite a fact to bring up there. Um, <laughs> wow. Got a lot of facts, Josh. Yes, yeah, for instance, good. Anna Thompson, who played Delilah, who we uh, had seen in The Crow, if you remember, uh, oh, okay. and Heaven's Gate. What do you what do you want to tell us about her collaborations with Amos Colic? What do you know about the Amos Colic films, Josh? I don't know anything about any of this, but I feel like you're going to tell me. Nah, I'll just move on. I mean, we'll he's like a, he's like one of these like New York like kind of. I mean, he did like Desperately Seeking Susan, but I think he was like one of these like transversive, subversive like New York kind of filmmakers in the '80s who was just like scrappy and putting stuff together that maybe like would be an interesting point for us to jump into from her because she became synonymous with his work and none of us really know about it. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not familiar with with his work, really. So uh, that is an interesting detour that I was not aware of. So, well, that, that... let me give you one more, Josh. One thing All I right. was looking to watch but was not able to find was the 2013 Japanese film Unforgiven with uh, Ken Watanabe based in the Meiji period, it sounds like it would be awesome to me. Yeah, I was really intrigued by that, which is a direct remake of this film. And I would have tried. It is available, I think, to rent on uh, digital. It's not streaming on any uh, subscription services, but it is available in the U.S. for people to watch. And I just discovered that, you know, right before this, when we were doing research, so 
didn't have a chance to watch it, but I, I would have at least tried to seek that out because it does sound fascinating. And it sounds like they did a good job of remaking it. It's not just, I mean, Unforgiven is so good that you think, how could anyone remake this? But just based on reviews and some letterbox comments, it sounds like they did do it justice. And Ken Watanabe is a great actor. So, so I would good, yeah. very much be curious to see that film. Yeah. And it would be, I think what makes it work is the idea, like they're doing it in a contemporary period to when this was done, but in a totally different culture. So I think that would be really interesting to check out. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're going to do a remake, you you bring some some new aspect like that to it and you don't just retell the exact same story in the exact same way. I have one question for Dave. Yeah. Mm. Red Dead Redemption 2. There's a whole storyline based on this movie. Tell me about it. I wish I could, but my video game knowledge basically stops in like the late 90s. So, yeah, if there had been an unforgiven video game that came out at the same time as the movie. Yeah, and the oh, roller coaster. I'd have yeah. been in and on that roller coaster. Hell yeah. yeah. Well, Josh, I now that Dave has uh, has shot shot down my video game question as if it was little Bill Daggett, I got nothing else for this one. Yeah, I, I just do want to again mention David Webb Peoples because I think watching this movie, I was so impressed with the writing. I thought, oh, this guy must have done so many great things that I just am not aware of. But as you said, he co-wrote 12 Monkeys, which was his really only big credit following this film. And his final screenwriting credit is for a Paul W.S. Anderson film called Soldier, which was not really a big deal in any way in 1998. And he doesn't have any screenwriting credits after that. So I'm not sure. I mean, he's he's getting up there now and maybe he would be retired. But in those 24 years since then, I don't know if he was you know, a lot of times working writers in Hollywood. They do a lot of writing that just doesn't actually get made into films. I don't know if that was the case for him, but I was disappointed that there weren't any other great David Webb people's screenplays for me to go watch a movie of. I mean, Blade Runner, right? He co-wrote Blade Runner also. Well, right. And Blade Runner is great. But I mean, I think he just kind of came in and, and did some some uh, revisions and additions on that. And not to discredit him, but it doesn't feel like it's, you know, his original story or original idea the way that this film does. Mm. All right. Fair, Josh. Thank you. All right. <laughs> So that's Unforgiven. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Uh, check us out on social media. Yeah, check us out on social media. We're at awesomemovieyear.com. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy on all of those socials. Go for Jason on Letterboxd. Also, check out my new ventures, Eat This Comedy and The Trivia Party, both of which uh, will have websites. But right now you can find on Instagram, something that still doesn't have a website is goforjason.com. There you go, Josh. All right. So, and if you're here in Vegas, you can see Jason uh, at one of those things at the Eat This Comedy shows or at his trivia party uh, nights that he hosts every week. So. Yeah, where we often have movie rounds. So come right. on. And, yeah. and, and shootouts, right? You know? <laughs> well, so, uh... if you're not there, we'll probably, well, they'll probably be safer. So. Okay. Don't, don't leave your guns at home. If yes, you go to please. the trivia party. <laughs> oh, good. All right. So I'm at joshbellhateseverything.com, which is not a great website, but probably has some things I've written about Clint Eastwood movies over the years. Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd, where I certainly am more active in posting thoughts on movies. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod.
And don't forget those trailer episodes that I would mention earlier that Dave and I do every month. Yeah. Listen right. to Jason on piecing it together. Forget yeah. the rest of it. Just listen to Jason. More Jason. Yeah. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. So, Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Well, Josh, it's Dave's pick. But since you want more Jason, Dead Alive by Peter Jackson. <laughs> oh, man. Just stealing poor Dave's thunder there. Dave, do you want to say one small thing about Dead Alive by Peter Jackson? That's your pick. Nope. Jason did it well. So. <laughs> All right. So tune in next time for Dead Alive. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.